All right. Well, uh, welcome to Ask an Austrian episode four. Uh, my name is Patrick Newman. I'm a professor of economics at Florida Southern College. I'm also a fellow of the Mises Institute. I've edited several uh, Murray Rothbard books, and I've published my own book uh, called Cronyism. And I'm really happy to be fielding some questions uh, related to Austrian economics, libertarianism, uh, and answering them. And hopefully I'll get some of them right. So um, going through some questions, got the first question from Neil. I know that the Austrians favor praxeology as opposed to empiricism slash positivism in the social sciences like economics. Could the same method apply to the natural sciences as well? Uh, this is a good question. Uh, my answer is potentially. I'm, I'm not a scientist, right? Uh, I'm, I'm an economist. So I guess you could say I'm a mad scientist. But there are some important differences uh, between the social sciences and the natural sciences, in which lead to differences in their method, right? The natural sciences, uh, there's no free will. Uh, there are quantitative constants and regularities. The assumptions that form the backbone of various theories are, are not self-evident. They have to be observed or estimated through empirical studies. Right? And this is very different than uh, the social sciences, such as economics, where uh, there is free will, right? So there are no quantitative constants. Human behavior can change uh, at whim. Um, and the assumptions are self-evident. We know that humans act. We know that there's a variety of resources, uh, et cetera. That's just it's technically empirical, but we say it's so broadly empirical. So I don't want to rule out any, um, uh, any use for the uh, praxeological method or deduction based off of self-evident assumptions in the natural sciences, but I would say its use should be fairly limited. Okay. All right. So the, uh, the next question is from Adam. Um, he says, quote, so he says, this question is based off a Peter Schiff tweet critical of Trump in the U.S. trade deficit. So September 3rd, 2020, the U.S. trade deficit unexpectedly surged 18.9% in July to $63.6 billion from an upwardly revised $53.5 billion. This is the widest trade deficit since 2008. So it's larger than any monthly trade deficit under Obama. At real Donald Trump promised to win on trade. We're losing big league. And that's the end of the tweet. Uh, so then Adam asks, he says, my question, is a trade deficit bad? I have a trade deficit with Amazon. They buy nothing from me. Am I worse off because of that? And I would say, no, uh, Adam, uh, you're, you're not worse off because of that. You're better off, right? You're choosing to buy goods from Amazon, and Amazon is choosing not to buy anything from you. Uh, trade deficits, uh, you know, we say trade deficits bad. Um, well, first, the, the, the bad is a normative statement, right? We're, we're trying to hold it to some sort of standard. Uh, is it bad in terms of economic growth? Bad in terms of social welfare? You know, what, what exactly uh, are, are we trying to uh, judge it by? Um, and, you know, we could say that, well, trade deficit uh, for an individual person, if someone's buying goods from Amazon, uh, then it's, it's not bad from the perspective of social welfare. It's voluntary. They are choosing to purchase these goods. Um, even if they're borrowing to purchase consumer goods, right? We'd say, well, consumer loans, it's not bad from the perspective of social welfare, right? Uh, it's still mutually beneficial. Economic growth, it gets a little bit more complicated, right? So if a country is running a trade deficit because it's importing uh, consumer goods, 
then this is similar to a consumer who is taking out uh, you know, credit card uh, loans, basically uh, running up his credit card debt. He's spending more on consumption than what he is uh, making. And that's increasing his short-term consumption, but we'll have to draw down on savings, right? Similar with a trade deficit. So if the trade deficit is used primarily to uh, facilitate consumption, then it will come at the expense of lower growth in the future, other things equal. On the other hand, if a trade deficit, such as what the U.S. ran in the 1800s, is primarily uh, used, you know, that's primarily due to an increased importation of capital goods and raw materials, et cetera, well, then it's going to lead to increased growth in the future, right? A small startup business could be buying more than what it's selling, but we're not going to say that's bad because the business is trying to grow. Okay, so trade deficits um, are not per se, quote, bad. It really needs to be um, uh, described much more carefully than how it's often described in the political uh, discussion. All right, um, so we can go to, let's see, let's go down the list here. All right, we've got Jonathan. Uh, Dear Austrian economist, I came across an idea regarding healthcare recently. The idea in brief was to deregulate the insurance, hospital, and pharmaceutical industries to allow greater innovation and access to healthcare. However, the government would still retain a mandate to provide catastrophic coverage for those in need. The money for this coverage would then come simply from printing the money. Of course, the individual I was talking with suggested there were only a couple Uh, There were a couple of upsides to this, excuse me. One, it wasn't taxing anyone. Two, sure, it might devalue the dollar, but only a little. And then three, we're helping people, right? Uh, They didn't really give too many downsides. Uh, They were selling their idea after all. What does an Austrian economist think of this idea? What are the potential downsides of, quote, simply printing money, end quote, if any? Thanks for your consideration. This is an interesting question. It's an interesting uh, reform. I um, I guess it's, it's, well, you deregulate everything and then you print money to fund one government program. Okay. Well, of course, I would agree with the deregulation of the uh, insurance, hospital, pharmaceutical industries, those industries, incredibly regulated uh, restrictions on, uh, you know, buying insurance from out of state. Uh, there's also various incentives to use insurance. I mean, that's a whole, that could be a whole podcast in itself. Uh, the real um, uh, ju- you know, the, the real uh, thrust of the question is, well, the government uh, pays for catastrophic coverage and it prints money uh, to fund that. Well, one, what is catastrophic coverage? We'd have to actually define that and there'd have to be a, some sort of clear uh, you know, limitation so people aren't pushing for less catastrophic things to be catastrophic. And then that net uh, would get wider and wider until we're right back to where we started. And then two, well, printing money would cause inflation, right? It, it, it is increasing the money supply and other things equal, increasing spending. And inflation is a tax. It benefits the early receivers of the money at the expense of the later receivers, right? So the early receivers would be the healthcare industry receiving the new money first. The late receivers uh, would be largely the poor, other people on fixed incomes. Ironically, the same people who this healthcare plan would be trying to help. So really... We're just kind of taxing the people we're trying to help, which um, is pretty much a standard government policy, but it's one I don't agree with. So interesting, uh, interesting proposal. I think there are some serious flaws with that. Okay. Um, All right. So we got one from John. 
no one argues that a child cannot be held by force to accomplish a diaper change. Uh, the child may not uh, disagree with that, but uh, <laughs> no libertarian sees 18 as any magical age. A free market, non-government organization, insurance slash security firm might implement intrusive uh, cogency testing to determine whether a client is a capable contractee and what risk it is to insure him. What standards or solutions can be endorsed that might minimize the suffering of those who would justify force towards those who cannot enter a contract on their own and then define these incapable contractees to include 95% of the population? Uh, so it's a libertarian child question. These are uh, this is what really separates the wheat from the chaff. Um, yeah. So this is Murray Rothbard has discussed uh, this issue. You know, are, when does someone become old enough to exercise their right to self ownership? Uh, a lot has been written on this. Uh, much ink has been spilled. I think Rothbard has the best answer, which is really when that person can demonstrate it. So a child would become a self-owner when they say, no, I want to leave. I want to leave the home. I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to start taking care of myself. This may shock many people, uh, many, many, many younger uh, listeners, but that's how it used to work back in the day, right? So, all right, when they can demonstrate uh, self-ownership. Of course, there are certain uh, children, you know, we were all that age once where you can't demonstrate self-ownership. You're a baby. You need to get fed. Uh, you want to remain under the care of your parents. You might whine, you might scream, you might say they're unfair, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, you're going to keep on sticking with mom and dad because mom makes good dinner uh, and dad, you know, pays to, pays for the house or something. Um, so a business can't really initiate force against kids you know, such as babies or toddlers or middle schoolers or whatever that lack self-ownership because, well, it would be violating the rights of the parents who are paying for all of their things and taking care of them, right? So that would get uh, definitely, uh, uh, you know, taken care of, you know, that takes care of that. Um, the intrusive testing, determine whether a client's a capable contract theme, what risk it is to insure them. Well, that would come through competition, right? So if one business says, well, we don't want to uh, accept a, uh, a child or to say that, you know, we can't insure a child, you know, other businesses might uh, at the same time, uh, perhaps it's a good idea that you know, someone's a company isn't um, uh, figuring out, you know, the insurance for for a child. I, I think this would be an unlikely scenario uh, in a libertarian society. I think you would see much greater parental control over children and also much greater emphasis on independence. So children would become much more mature and able to uh, live on their own or um, you know, be, be in a, sort of an, an independent unit uh, than in the, the current world. So at least that's my thoughts. If you're interested more on Rothbard's uh, thoughts on, uh, you know, the children, child's rights, I encourage you to read Ethics of Liberty. All right, I have a question by Liam. Was Rothbard a better political philosopher, historian, or economist? It's a great question. A lot of people... Uh, asked, you know, asked me how I rate Rothbard's various uh, you know, writings in, in different fields. I think he was, he was a great economist. I'd say him being an economist is his strongest suit. That's what he was trained in. That's what Mises was trained in. He was very influenced by him. Uh, I think Man, Economy, and State is Rothbard's greatest book. It's a huge book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. Bob Murphy's Study Guide is a great uh, intro. There's also some uh, various videos on man economy and state. Uh, 
then I'd say he was, uh, he was a, his second best field was history. He was a great historian. I love his history. His history is fantastic. He's easily the historian who's influenced me the most. Uh, he wrote his dissertation on his historical topic. I think America's Great Depression is his greatest uh, history book. And then I would say philosophy. And admittedly, my answer to this is based mostly off of what I know. So I know economics the most, then history, then philosophy. Uh, I would say Rothbard, I've still learned a lot from him as a philosopher. I just haven't read so much philosophy, uh, you know, independent of Rothbard and, and other like-minded thinkers to really be able to give an objective appraisal. So I would say economist first, historian second, philosopher third. Okay. All right, we've got a question from Michelle. How does libertarian deal with uh, libertarianism? Excuse me, deal with this. My neighbor has a small manufacturing business, and he is using toxic chemicals that are seeping into the aquifer and poisoning my water, which I get from a well. Is libertarianism against regulatory agencies? What is the libertarian solution to such dilemma? It's a great question. Uh, this uh, this this happens. This has happened historically, and it'll happen in the modern world. Uh, where you know some water supply is getting polluted by uh, you know a company uh, that's emitting waste of, of various uh, forms, uh, and the libertarian answer is okay. Well, how are the property rights signed? How are they determined? Right. So you know we know how goods are acquired. Someone would homestead the area around the well, so they own the well. And the manufacturing company. Was there anything agreed upon by the owner of the well and the manufacturing company beforehand? Right to that, the manufacturing company would pay the um, the owner of the well uh, or the owner of the aquifer to pollute. If so, then that's not an issue that was decided. Uh, but if it wasn't decided, and the 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 aquifer and the, and the well, they're just getting uh, polluted with water against the wishes of the owners. Well, then that's a violation of property rights, and that's a situation for the court, courts to uh, uphold in private law agencies in the past have taken on such cases, ostracism in various reputational mechanisms. Those are very uh, powerful incentives. Okay. So libertarians aren't against regulation per se. They're against uh, government regulation. There's been a lot of work on private regulation, uh, Ed Stringham's private governance. This is a relatively new book that came out, uh, talks about this the uh, Murray Rothbard has discussed this. Um, he's got an article, Law, Property Rights, and Air Pollution, came out in the early 80s. Uh, highly encourage uh, you to read it. And regulatory agencies by the government, they add a whole bunch of costs. They, one, ex ante prohibit certain voluntary actions. So maybe the owner of a lake or of a or well is willing to accept money from the company in return for pollution being used in the lake various uh, being the pollution being put in the lake excuse me various uh, government agencies are going to prevent that they're going to add additional compliance costs they're going to shift the settling of disputes away from law and away from uh, mutual exchange to government edict in various bureaucratic decisions right it's so a big problem uh, very pro protection of property rights uh, i'm very pro protection of property rights but i'm very anti-regulatory agencies I think they're pretty much all useless, but that's again, a, a time for another question, I guess. Um, 
All right, we got a question by David. How does the market deal with unfaithful actors like that of big corporations in Africa, for example? I can understand just about every concept, but if a company can employ what is essentially slave labor and infringe upon human rights, what can the market do to prevent that? This is a great question. Uh, whenever I teach about the benefits of capitalism, whether in the past or uh, in the world we live in today, there's almost always a, you know, some sort of question given, well, what, about sweat? what about sweatshop labor? What about people who are working in what we would consider very uh, unsuitable conditions, right? And so my answer to this question is, all right, well, technically, is it actually slave labor or is it just very, very cheap labor? There is a difference, right? If it's actually slave labor where an evil company is uh, invading some town at night and uh, plucking children from beds or just locking up people and sending them to this uh, this factory, and then they're working, literally, they're not able to leave, etc. Well, that's certainly not part of the free market. Um, any type of slave labor in the, in, in, in the modern world, though, it's very limited, I guess, I'd say in that regard, but especially in the past, so we think of the American South, it required a tremendous amount of government regulation. Uh, you had to have government regulation to fund slave patrols, you had to have government regulation regarding where slaves could go, um, you know, you had to have government regulation regarding fugitive slaves, right, bringing them back to their owners. So slavery can only exist uh, with a tremendous amount of government regulation. So that's something that would important, uh, important to know. The other thing is, all right, let's say it's not slavery. Let's just say it's really cheap labor. Okay, well, there's nothing per se wrong with that. This is actually the normal process of development uh, that's happened time and time again in history, right? We're, we were brought... Uh, out of sort of very barbaric living conditions in every continent that's been industrialized through this process where people were working uh, in what we would consider now very low um, and very low quality jobs, low wages, et cetera. But they were voluntarily choosing to do that. It was better than the alternative of working on the farm, uh, you know, where you're dealing with uh, the wilderness and a tremendous amount of disease, et cetera, right? So, you know, the businesses moving into Africa, if Africa ever experiences a full-blown industrial revolution, you're absolutely going to see uh, this type of behavior. But what will allow the living standards to improve is, well, more businesses enter in, right? So more factories are being developed, and that's going to bid up the, the price of labor. They're going to have to offer better working conditions to make them more productive. They're going to give them better quality machines. They're going to pay them higher wages, blah, 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 blah. Um, so again, if it's actually slavery, then it's going to require a tremendous amount of government regulation. If it's not slavery, then this is just part and parcel of the Industrial Revolution. Okay. All right. Um, so we've uh, Sachin. Um, we've got a quote. Uh, I'm reading Man, Economy, and State. It's a very difficult book to understand for non-economists like me. Do you have any video lectures on man economy and state and human action? I've listened to the human action podcast, but they are not detailed lectures. It's a great question. Uh, I mentioned earlier, everyone should read man economy and state. Understandably, it can be a very intimidating book. You know, the full book with power and market is 1500 pages. So it's not exactly, it's not exactly beach reading material, unless you're, of course you're, in, you're into that, which you know I am. Um, but for most people, it's not beach reading material. Right. Um, I've given some lectures on man economy and state and human action. Uh, those have been either on the human action podcast, so it doesn't really help too much, uh, or they've been at Rothbard graduate seminars. So this is one of the Mises Institute's 
um, annual uh, seminars uh, for graduate students. Uh, those videos are not released, I believe, but I do have good news. Uh, I can refer to you to the videos I watched when I was reading Man, Economy, and State. So if you go on YouTube and you type in Rothbard Graduate Seminar 2008, a long, long time ago, uh, those lectures are uploaded. Audio lectures, but it's given by, you know, they're given by uh, Joseph Salerno, Walter Block, Robert Murphy, uh, Jeff Herbner, et cetera. Uh, I learned a lot by listening to them. I highly encourage you to do so. They are, they break down man economy and state and they're more in depth than uh, some of the human action podcasts. So again, Rothbard Graduate Seminar 2008 YouTube, uh, you should be able to find them pretty quick. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, Michael Lewis, my understanding is that most of the complaints libertarians have with the state boils down to a lack of consent. But theoretically, we could dissolve all governments tomorrow and a group of people could voluntary, voluntarily enter into a contract that looks identical to the current United States government. At that point, the objection regarding a lack of consent disappears with respect to people who entered that community, but I suspect libertarians would nonetheless find problems with the system in time. Which brings me to my question, what, if any, are the limits to consent under a libertarian slash Austrian framework? Here are a few examples so you know where I'm going with this. Can I consent to democracy? knowing that I can be overruled by the majority sometimes. Can I consent to a contract without a dissolution clause, i.e. no secession? Can I consent to encumber my land such that my heirs will be bound by the same rules as me if they wish to live on uh, my land? If I consent to all of the above and things take a turn for the worse, could I ever be justified in breaking the contract? Thanks. I look forward to see uh, what other people think about this issue. All right. Great question, uh, Michael. So this is a, you hit the nail on the head, you know, libertarians criticize the government due to the lack of consent. They say the government is an inherently ex ante coercive agency. It's violating people's rights, right? And so you might ask, all right, well, what about theoretically if people decide to voluntarily form a government? This is the so-called social contract theory, how governments are often uh, justified as, as being formed and, and why they're voluntarily. Well, way back when people agreed to enter in this contract. Okay. So we could take it a step further, like you did and say, not only is it the United States government, but there's no escape clause. Okay. Could people do that? There's actually a little bit of a, a dispute among libertarians if this is possible. Murray Rothbard argued that free will is inalienable. So people cannot enter into voluntary uh, slavery contracts. Uh, Walter Block has disagreed in saying that, well, those types of contracts should be permissible. So in theory, a bunch of people, at least we're taking the Block view, a bunch of people could agree to create uh, this evil government that then they, they, you know, they, they hate, and then they're stuck there forever. Um, I mean, I personally side with the Rothbard view, but this is more of a a priori theoretical answer. I prefer to tackle questions like this just by looking at the empirical evidence of states and showing that, well, when it comes to actually state formation throughout history, including American history, such as the U.S. Constitution, uh, governments have been formed through the so-called state theory, the, the conquest theory of the state, right, where one entity takes over a group of people and then basically forces taxes and governments upon them rather than the social contract theory. So in theory, the type of government that you mentioned could be possible, maybe 
you know, depending on how you're looking at this or how strict you want to go with, um, you know, you, the exit clauses and stuff, but the likelihood of that is, is, is very, very rare. Again, you take the U.S. The United States, for example, and the Constitution was imposed upon um, the nation against its will or opposed upon um, the, the various independent states and the Articles of Confederation. Murray Rothbard's fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty talks about that. Uh, so I encourage you to read that book if you're interested in these and uh, in, in, in this question. My, my own book, Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, also covers this issue. All right. Um, so go down uh, the way. Let's see. All right, here's a good question by Jeff. The American model of conservation is widely considered the best by sportsmen around the world. And a key component of that is the notion that the wildlife of this country is collectively owned. Public lands play a crucial role in protecting breeding and feeding grounds for many species of wildlife. Funds from the Pittman-Robertson Act go towards supporting wildlife habitat and wildlife management research. I am 99% on board with a strict libertarian view, but I'm also a sportsman that enjoys uh, you know, recre recreating uh, in the out of doors. I belong to a uh, private hunting club that leases hunting rights on private land, but with the survival of many species depending on large migration corridors, it seems unreasonable to believe that private landowners across the board would work toward keeping wildlife populations healthy. What does an Austrian model of wildlife conservation look like? And is there a way to protect wildlife and liberty? It's a great question. Um, so the first question is, why do we want to conserve the animals? What makes them so special? Uh, and I mean that, to be honest, uh, because the animals live to serve us, right? We are the, unless it's superior aliens come uh, land on the planet, or there's been vampires among us all this time or something, uh, humans are the undisputed masters of the planet. We have the highest faculties of reason. Uh, we own things. Don't need to get into whether or not animals have rights. That's a whole question that um, it's a whole can of worms. But the animals exist to serve us. So animals and species will survive provided that they provide services to us. We, they can be used for eating. They can be used for playing. They, they, they look nice. Right, we we care about them. We think they're beautiful, majestic creatures, etc. Right, and uh, how much we value them is going to be based off how much we pay for them. If there's a if there was a really rare dinosaur, or there, there have been really rare dinosaurs, um, but you know, somehow preserving it and keeping it alive would cost an incredible amount of money, and people aren't willing to pay for it. Well, dinosaurs got to go the way of the dodo. You know, that's that's the only way. Species have been getting destroyed since really for thousands of years. And if anything, uh, I've, there, there's some interesting literature you might be interested, you should read talking about how the modern world can take care of conservation uh, in much better ways now than before, given that we are able to use farmland more efficiently, we need less land to produce uh, the same amount of food as before. And we have modern technology, et cetera, uh, to help us with solving these problems. Um, there's a there's a great book. It came out a couple of years ago by this guy. His last name is Thomas, and it was called Inheritors of the Earth, right? And he talks about how, you know, actually, you know, there, there's a conservation can survive um, or be preserved or adapted in the modern world. You know, for animals that are becoming endangered in Africa or the climate is becoming less suitable, 
they, we can move them to wildlife preserves in the far west, you know, in the far west of, of, of North America, um, you know, and it, as well as, you know, animals from other areas, et cetera. Um, I, I do think that those types of animals could exist um, provided the land is cheap enough and people would want to pay for them either to hunt them occasionally or to uh, just view them in their natural beauty. And, you know, while it might be hard to have a park like that in New York, you could certainly have something like that in, uh, you know, Nevada or Idaho or, you know, where, wherever, right? Um, or, or Wyoming now, you know. Um, okay. Where are we here? Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so we've got Jamie. So the IMF and the Fed are creating massive economic bubbles. What happens to the majority of the world that has been raised out of abject poverty from primarily first world intervention and funds? The great questions, basically, uh, you know, has foreign aid been responsible for industrial development and declines in poverty? And I would say no. Uh, when you look at the actual effects of foreign aid, the intentions might sound great. It might sound like a great idea, but it's actually not a great idea, right? In when you look at countries that have gotten foreign aid, they suffer slower economic growth compared to other countries. Now, this is not to uh, criticize foreign investment. Right? That certainly raises standards of living and, and, and so on. Okay, uh, that leads to a general improvement that's happened from Western investment in, in China and other Asian countries. It happened from European investment in America during the 1800s. This, my, my criticism is strictly directed against foreign aid, which is when a government uh, basically donates a large amount of food, money, uh, et cetera, to a poor country, right? And so why are there various problems with this? Well, the first problem is that uh, this is similar to welfare. Just, just when a government donates money or donates, takes money from taxpayer A and gives it to someone else, um, it disincentivizes them to work. So the countries become more dependent upon foreign aid. In many ways, it can actually hurt the local businesses because if you just flood an economy with a bunch of sneakers or uh, you know, NFL uh, shirts from the, the team who lost the Super Bowl, well, then that's going to put a real big squeeze on the local makers of shoes and clothes, et cetera. And then an, an, another great, you know, you know, not great, but another important reason why foreign aid fails is that it often just gets it goes to these very corrupt governments that don't actually use it to make the people better, but instead use it to just keep the cronies in power. So if you look at um, various countries around the world or regions of the world that has received foreign aid, Africa has re received historically a tremendous amount of foreign aid relative to uh, poor regions such as, you know, other like-minded regions such as South America and Asia. I think it's about three to six times more um, then those areas, you know, depending on which one you're looking at, but economic growth has been lower, extreme poverty has declined much less, and so on. While you know standards of living have improved in South America and especially Asia, Africa is still really lagging. And the big reason is, well, foreign aid hasn't helped, and foreign aid is hasn't changed the government. In order to have true economic growth, you have to change the institutions, right? And that really can be only from a bottom up. Uh, or private investment, less from a government investment perspective. Okay. Um, hmm. So going on here. All right. Uh, so we've got Connor. 
Let's presume by some miracle that an Austrian is appointed to chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and that due to external political factors, abolition of the Fed is not possible immediately. What would central banking look like under these conditions? What steps would Austrian chairmanship take to switch to a more free market currency as far as policy? Well, uh, I can only answer this question by what I would do. So let's say I'm nominated uh, to become head of the Fed and I, I accept the nomination. Uh, well, you could stop printing money. <laughs> That'd be a good idea. Uh, you could do that by saying, well, the FOMC, we're not going to meet every six weeks. We're going to meet every six years or something like that. Um, but, you know, aside from that and engaging in interventions, uh, there are various regulations that the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors has some influence over. Admittedly, banking and monetary regulation is covered by this massive web of government agencies, and, and that's intended because it's extremely confusing and it's impossible to, to, to really reform anything meaningly, meaningfully. So you've got state banking regulations, you've got uh, national bank reg banking regulations, you've got the control of the currency, uh, you've got all sorts of stuff. I think if the Federal Reserve allowed alternative competing currencies, such as cryptocurrencies, you know, Bitcoin, gold, those to be used as money, that's an important step. They could also make it easier for individuals to, to, be, to start up a bank, right? That would reduce barriers to entry and so on. So that would be very important. Um, so so that, that is, you know, there are various steps that could be done. Of course, the first best solution is to get rid of the Fed. But very often, the people in charge of a government agency have enormous leeway in deciding what can be enforced, how it can be enforced, or if it's not even enforced at all. Right. So if there were truly a Rothbardian in charge of the Fed, uh, I would be happy with that. It, of course, the person would face an incredible amount of pressure and wouldn't be able to get a lot of stuff done, but they'd still be able to get some stuff done. And, you know, it would also just be kind of cool to have that. So you know, may, 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 maybe that will happen in the future. Um, who, who knows? OK, um, so a couple other questions for wrapping up here. Um, Ah, yes, this is a good question. So by Dallas, um, Bavirk. So this is Bombavirk question. So Bombavirk is always great. If you ever want to get straight to my, um, you ever want to get straight to my uh, my heart, get me to pay attention. Uh, you mentioned something about Eugen von Bombavirk. Uh, Bombavirk's third reason for why humans display time preference, that more roundabout production processes are more productive, was criticized by Ludwig von Mises and Frank Fetter for relapsing back into the producti productivity theory of interest. Do you feel that Mises and Fetter were mistaken in this criticism of uh, as uh, Bombavirk was still attributing the existence of interest to time preference and only attempting to explain that a physical reality of production has influence on the human preference to have something sooner rather than later? Also, what other flaws exist in Bombavirk's theory of interest that few, if any, Austrians seem to subscribe to his theories. He's conceived of it. Great question. So for those of you who don't know who Bombavirk was, he was basically Mises's, Ludwig von Mises's um, uh, professor. He was a follower of Karl Menger. He's seen as one of the, the original, the, 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 the OGs of Austrian economics, right? Um, and uh, you know, very, very influential, did a lot of stuff on interest in capital theory, et cetera. So uh, in this monumental, uh, massive treatise, this three-volume treatise, uh, Capital Interest, as it was later called, in the first volume, uh, History and Critique of Interest Theories, Bombavirk is going through all the various reasons why interest 
exists, all the various economic theories, and he's, he really does this, this total demolition job, this hit job on them. He, he criticizes all of them, and he, he, he says, well, the, the answer is time preference. And I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to tell you that in, my, in the next volume, Positive Theory of Capital. So that's great, great marketing by Bomba Burke. Um, and then the positive theory of capital, he goes through this and he mentions time preference, but he also brings up uh, time productivity, sort of as some people have said, through the back door. So saying production does affect interest rates. And Austrians such as Mises and Rothbard have always criticized Bombavirk for lapsing into a productivity theory, okay? Or uh, you know some uh, productivity theory, especially because later followers uh, including F.A. Hayek, who's very influenced by Bombavert's capital theory, uh, seemed to uh, follow the productivity side of the coin, so to speak, more than the time preference side. So for Bombavert, he said that, well, time preference determines the existence of interest, but you know, time productivity would determine, say, the height of interest. Uh, Mises and Rothbard, the existence and height of interest, um, at least if we're going by this the way I've currently phrased it, um, it's only determined by time preferences. And what Rothbard and Mises mean by that as well as the proportion of consumption spending to investment spending, okay? So when time preferences fall, interest rates fall. When time preferences rise, interest rates rise. Uh, I agree with Mises and Rothbard. I think Bomberberg made a mistake bringing time productivity back in. Uh, I think it sort of implicitly relies on time preference. And it's also... Um, sort of abstracting from Bombavirk didn't really analyze the structure of production as Rothbard did. And I think Rothbard uh, explains it much more clearly why interest, at least the, the, the so-called pure rate of interest in the evenly rotating economy is only due to time preference. Bombavirk made an incredible amount of advancements in interest theory and capital theory. Uh, and his theory is in many ways uh, very influential, especially among some certain neoclassical economists, et cetera. Uh, people have found flaws in his capital theory, um, you know, going through the average period of production uh, and, and, and some stuff related to that. I think Mises and especially Rothbard advanced Bombavirk's theory while getting rid of its flaws. So Bombavirk, fantastic economist. Um, I encourage everyone to read his stuff, though it's, it could be a bit advanced, um, but you know, it's, it's definitely, um, three most important Austrian economists, in my opinion, are Bombavirk, Mises, and Rothbard. Uh, might be a bit controversial, but that's just me. And um, let's see. Do I think we got time for one more question? Uh, all right, Paul. In a voluntary society, how could nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons be handled in a way that doesn't require a state? but also it stopped deranged individuals from using them on peaceful people. This is a good question. Uh, I remember listening or, or, or watching a, uh, a Q&A session Rothbard gave uh, to the Libertarian Party in the early 80s when someone asked them this question. So how would nukes be handled in a libertarian society? Nuclear power was a big thing in the 70s. Uh, you know, the issue of nukes, the threat of nuclear war was obviously a big issue with the Cold War. So this is a hot button issue. Now nukes and nuclear plants, it, it's, it's less so, but you still got various other things like biological and chemical weapons, et cetera. And Rothbard's answer, uh, I loved it. He said, you know, that's a tough question. There's, there, there's not um, libertarian consensus on this issue. Some people say everybody 
and their brother's brother should be allowed to own nukes. Other people say owning a nuke is an act of innate aggression. And he said, well, like most issues, I take a middle of the road position on it, right? And the crowd laughed and I just thought that was a good opening. Um, so it is an important question. I mean, but I think it can be handled. One, we have to ask, all right, well, historically, all of those weapons or most of those weapons have been uh, created by governments or due to various government interventions in, in, in countries. And their main re existence is to kill large groups of people in a concentrated area. Okay, so we have to ask, all right, you know, that wouldn't really happen in a free market society with, uh, you know, the, the law, like the law based off of, um, you know, the, the various tort issues. And if someone's a criminal, well, they themselves will get tried, you know, it's going to bomb an area. Um, so there wouldn't really be a, a reason for that. Uh, I think if we were able, ever able to go to a free market world, what would happen to most of the world's nukes and biological weapons is they would be destroyed. They would be stored in some, you know, the, the, the vault deep in the, in the ocean where only Superman can get to it or, or, or someone else like that. Um, they also would be heavily monitored or the ones still existing in case of some larger threat. But of course, there's always this question of, all right, what about a nut job? Right. What about, you know, some people just want to watch the world burn, so to speak. And yeah, that could exist, but then there would be private mitigation efforts against that, you know, monitoring for chemical weapons. If you're going to go on a plane, there would still be some form of security, et cetera. Um, you know, it's security that the market demands. Uh, you know, the, the main reason why those weapons are used is because of, as Ron Paul would say, an incredible amount of blowback, right? People are upset at one government, usually the United States, intervening in their region. And so then they're going to, uh, you know, foment hate against the United States, against its people, et cetera, right? So this is what happened with 9-11, um, you know, 20 years ago, 20 or so years ago, uh, and so on. So I think a libertarian society could handle these well. One, they wouldn't really be produced. And I think there would be effective monitoring. I mean, the real question for me is how do we get rid of all the weapons that we have? Most military weapons, um, you know, they wouldn't really find a, a big use in a libertarian society, but they're getting produced by the government. It's always interesting, uh, just to point out, governments are so intent on controlling individuals' access to firearms, but at the same time, they're also uh, producing incredible amounts of, uh, you know, the, the dangerous explosives and weapons, et cetera, for them to use. So they basically say, well, we can't trust you with those weapons, but you can trust us with these weapons. So I always go, okay, uh, whatever you say. Um, okay, so I think that's it. I think I've answered a good amount of questions. Hopefully I have uh, answered the questions in a satisfactory manner for the questions that I've uh, I brought up. Uh, thanks so much for listening to me. And uh, again, you can follow me on social media at Dr. Patrick Newman. I'm on uh, Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. And uh, yeah, thanks. So uh, appreciate you listening to this.